Let's get scratching. We got an explosive broadcast coming to you. Listen up. Sega games, just keep playing them. Sega! We're back. It's the Sega Bit Swing Report Show. Get ready for Sega interviews and news. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Segabit Swing and Report Show, our interview podcast. I'm your host, Barry. With me, for the first time in a while, is my co-host with the mo-host, George. Hello, everybody. Man, you need to step it up. Come on, I'm giving that, I know, I'm giving I know. that YouTube uh, zazzle. I, I, I know, I know. Hello, gamers. Welcome right. to this the podcast. Yeah, and we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Kiyoshi Okuma. Hello, 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 and so, thank you for um, having me on. Yes, and so Kiyoshi, you might, you might, may or may not have heard his name in the past on Sega Bits. Um, we have covered uh, his work on um, Strike Blazinger, and um, Kiyoshi is a game developer and artist who has worked on such titles as Gauntlet Legends, World Series Baseball 2K2 and 2K3, and The Sims 2, and of uh, I guess importance to Sega fans, World Series Baseball. 2K2, was it, was on the, the Dreamcast, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. 2K3 did not appear. No, by that time, uh, Dreamcast was kind of on the out, so um, that was on the other existing consoles. Right, yeah. So we're, we're actually we're going to talk a little bit about Dreamcast development, PlayStation 2 development, all this sort of stuff. You have some notes that I'm very interested to hear about. Um, but before that, I wanted to... Have you maybe fill us in on what um, the online websites that list your name and your credits have not caught up on? Because everything kind of ends at about, what, like uh, 10 years ago. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So there was a couple of games. I was working for um, Electronic Arts, but actually the, um, the Maxis division of Electronic Arts mm -hmm. uh, for a while. So that's what The Sims 2 came from. And then... Uh, after The Sims 2, I took a little break, and then I came back, um, and I did a game called Dark Spore. And Dark Spore is a very odd product, actually. It was a online four-player Diablo clone that um, ended up <laughs> competing with things like Torchlight, and uh, it was before Diablo 3. And uh, it had the Spore name on it, though, so people were really confused. And it was also very, like, graphically bloody, mm -hmm. like, on purpose. <laughs> and we were we were wondering like should we keep that should we not keep that but anyway yeah dark score it was a uh, it was interesting you can still see videos of it um, total biscuit uh, did a video on it a while back <laughs> and um, after that the team from dark score got rolled back into electronic arts and Maxis continued to work on the online SimCity that they did and we did a game called Dongate which was a, a MOBA, uh, which was, you know, the same genre as, like, League of Legends and Dota 2 and stuff like that. And that game never made it out of beta, but it was actually very well liked at the time. Like, a lot of people uh, really enjoyed playing it, who actually did play it. And uh, I thought it was unfortunate, because the game was really good, and it got more press when it died than when we were trying to promote it. Um, but uh, those were the, the two projects I did while I was still uh, working in the industry, like employed by a company. 
And uh, as Barry said, now I'm working on an independent venture with my friend Chris Tang um, called Strike Blazinger. Yes. Which is also Sega inspired. Yes, of <laughs> yeah. course. And we have two full podcasts with Chris Tang from, uh, I believe, 2016 and 2017. Or am I going too far back? It might be 2017. No, I think that's about right. Yeah, and um, we we talk a lot about the game, so I'm not gonna uh, uh, have you retread old ground that we covered already on past shows. But I did want you to just give us a very short um, status update. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> there's actually not that much to tell right now. We're we're just sort of in the middle of of development, and like I'm building lots of assets, and Chris is is trying to revise code and put in new features. And um, I want people to know it's not dead. It's it's still going ahead and we're, we're still working on it. So um, please be patient. We only have, you know, basically two main developers on this game. So it's not going really fast, but <laughs> right. um, we were doing our best. So uh, we'll probably show it again. We're thinking sometime next year, uh, maybe early. We'll see. Um, but yeah, there's been a bit of uh, radio silence for a little while because we're really trying to revamp the, the base engine to do all the things we need it to do before we start, you know, doing demos and shows and stuff like that again. So cool. hopefully well, we'll, we'll be able to impress you guys when we show again. <laughs> yeah, I was impressed when I saw it. I, I just want to know, like, what do you think is like the hardest thing to implement that you guys are having trouble on right now in that game? Uh, it's. I don't know, like a little bit of everything, really. It's, you know, uh, we're trying to get more uh, detail in terms of enemy abilities and, um, like, bosses and such, like what they can do, how the player interacts with them, and just enemies in general also. Um, and on my end, I'm trying to, you know, build actually new characters and, um, you know, new full environments and such. So it's, uh, it's a lot of stuff. Has the game expanded beyond the scope that it had maybe like a year ago? Is there a lot of new stuff that you're looking at, or was it was there a, a design locked down? Uh, no, it's it's pretty locked down for what we're calling like design version one, which is going to be the main you know uh, shooting engine kind of what you saw uh, right. is basically what it's going to be. It'll be more detailed and more you know fleshed out, but. Uh, it will be essentially that, just, you know, better and more levels, etc. <laughs> cool, cool. George, do you have any uh, Blazinger questions? Yeah, like, why did you guys change the name? I know you guys put, put out, like, uh -huh. cards with the old name, and I yeah. have one of the cards, and I, yeah. I, it was kind of hard to remember the name, but uh, I thought it was pretty good, so I don't know why you guys changed it. Yeah, so it used to be called Strike Harbinger, and... Yeah. Um, the reason why we changed it is because we applied for a copyright or a patent or something. What was it? No, trademark. Sorry, trademark on that name. And it turned out that Sony, of all people, had a trademark on the word Harbinger um, from a comic book series. So they may be planning to do something with that. We don't know. Hmm. Um, but they will not let anybody use Harbinger in any context. And, you know, our lawyers told us that we would win a fight probably, but we'd have to spend a lot of money. And we're like, no, just forget it. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, we'll come up with something else. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about Blazinger is I thought it was sort of strange at first, but um, it's kind of grown on me. And it, 
it helps make us stand out at least. Like we we have a word that no one else really uses, you know, in the title. So uh, I, I think it, it'll work. You know, I think people will at least think it's it's decent. In I don't know, you know. Yeah. What do you guys? You guys like it? <laughs> it it threw um, me at first, um, but it is growing on me. I've actually been saying it in my head more than Harbinger now, which is good. It's it's taking its good, place. Yeah. <laughs> Though I am wondering how much is my my uh, t-shirt worth now? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll see, huh? Yeah, right. You're um, you're one of very few people who has one. Oh man, yeah. If we were doing video, I'd be wearing it, but uh, I'm not. But uh, <laughs> no, but it was a. Nice shirt, and I love the f the flying discs that you made, the frisbees. Oh yeah, yeah, we did that too. I got one of the ones with the lights in it. <laughs> Chris was very gung ho about uh, marketing promotion and such. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was very cool. Um, cool. We may do um, that again, but once everything is more, um, you know, stable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I kind of, I'm always kind of fascinated when people get into the game industry, like. What was your like gaming experiences growing up, and what made you want to become a developer that made games? Oh man! So from age like six, I I was in the arcades, you know, looking at all these wondrous you know machines and stuff. Uh, my mom took me there because she had some free coupons to get tokens at the arcade, and she's like, "Oh hey, he might like that," you know. Little did she know that would lead to a lifetime of, of gaming, you know, even up to now. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, so I played a lot of the early arcade games. I, I played like Space Invaders, Asteroids, um, a little known game called Major Havoc. Have you guys heard of that one? Yeah, I love that game. The game is really good. Like, very few people seem to know about it. But um, I think something I really liked about arcade games, especially, oh, and the Star Wars arcade game, really good. Mm -hmm. Um, that was Atari. <laughs> uh, but something I always really liked about arcade games was uh, the physicality of it. So I play games now, and it's like it's all fine and great, like with you know game pads and such. But um, you don't really get into it like you did in the arcade. And when I go to like these retro game shows and stuff, you know, it kind of refreshes my memory. I get to play these old arcade games, and I'm like, what was so special about this game? And I really remember the physicality of it. You know, like it's. It is something that can't really be reproduced too easily at home, you know. But uh, yeah, my history is I I went to the arcades for a little while, and then I got a Atari Twenty Six Hundred uh, from my grandma, and I played that for a while. And I liked stuff that was a little bit like more intricate than that, though. Like I. I was, the only games I liked on it were the ones that were more complicated. It's like uh, Pitfall 2, um, River Raid. Well, I guess that one wasn't that complicated. But um, and one called uh, Moon Sweeper. Moon Sweeper. Moon Sweeper is not well known, as it, I don't think. <laughs> but you had to like shoot stuff in like kind of a galaxy, kind of zoomed out thing, and then you'd go to a planet, and you. It was actually sort of like Space Harrier, come to think of it. You'd like, you'd like fly over the planet, and you had to collect all these uh, spacemen that were on the planet, and then you had to dodge through these. Um, there was like these uh, boost gates that would get you off the planet, and those got like 
harder and harder to get through because they like get spaced apart more and more. It's like flying through ring, rings, kind of. Yeah. And uh, and then you loop it again, so it, it kind of looped over after that. You shoot stuff in you know in space again. So it had a couple of modes, and it, it was really interesting. It was uh, for for that era of console, it was actually pretty cool. And that never had an arcade equivalent, correct? Not that I know of, no. So when you went to the arcades, were you always drawn more to the machines that were, um, I guess, unique? Like something that you could not experience at home? You know, at the time, I didn't really think about it that way. I was drawn to everything that just looked cool, really. I mean, um, <laughs> when we get to the Dreamcast part, that's when the arcades really uh, kind of got one up, right? So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's when I started considering, oh, well, like arcades are no longer king, you know? <laughs> um, but for, for the time I was playing arcade games, I, I was always drawn to arcade games just because they had better technology, better, you know, gameplay sometimes, whatever. So then you, so from there then, you went to the arcade and you went home and then you just started developing games, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I always had a, I always had a, a passion for it. When I was a little kid, um, when I got an NES, right, uh, mm -hmm. I would actually draw stuff, like I would draw like the Gradius ships, and I would draw like Mega Man characters, and um, I actually made up my own Mega Man characters, like just in my head, and I draw like what their abilities were and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, one of the ones I drew actually sort of ended up in one of the Mega Man games, not, not because I drew it, but because somebody else had the same idea, and uh, that was Dust Man, so that was a weird... <laughs> Coincidence. I was like, is Capcom stealing my ideas? Yeah, right. Um, but uh, yeah, that was it was a trip actually. But yeah, I've always been sort of interested in art, but also very much interested in video games. So um, when I got to, well, I, you know, as I went through school, I'd be playing video games with friends and stuff. <clears throat> and when I got to college. Uh, my mom was like, well, you know, what are you going to do for college? And I said, well, I think I'll try and become a programmer. And in high school, I had like the world's worst C programming class and ended up hating programming. So, <laughs> I, and my family had kind of a history of art. So I was already sort of drawing stuff and I would, you know, I was always sort of interested in that. So I decided that when I went to college, I would try and do animation. And I took one like traditional animation class and it was kind of, I don't know, it was a little bit rocky for me. I was like, well, I don't know if I'm really that good at animating. But um, at the time, Pixar was actually starting to get big. And I ended up <clears throat> being interested in, well, games are going, you know, games, game tech is going 3D because I was starting to see stuff like, you know, uh, Donkey Kong Country and Vector Man and things like that. And you know, Pixar was getting big, and I was like, oh, you know, 3D looks interesting, maybe I should try, because I always like computers too, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, maybe I should try 3D graphics. And to do 3D graphics, I actually had to, uh, my family was gonna move to the west coast to the uh, Bay Area, uh, you know, SF Bay Area. And uh, it turned out that was one of two schools in the entire nation, or there was one of two schools the entire nation that taught 3D graphics, which was the Academy of Art College. And um, I ended up going there. And I learned how to do 3D graphics. 
And uh, one of my teachers actually recommended me for my Atari games slash Midway job, mm. which is how I ended up doing Gauntlet Legends. So that was uh, very, very fortuitous. I actually hadn't graduated by that time either. And that was one of the earliest. So, so oh, okay. So you hadn't graduated yet. You were already working in the industry. Right. That's I, That kind of goes along with uh, Chris Tang. I trying to remember didn't he started very young too right he, he started so young that they had to pay him under the table <laughs> I remember yeah i was he, so yeah he, he wasn't even college age <laughs> I, no, i'll be honest i was so confused when he tell me stories because i'm like are you making this up or are you like really old because i'm very confused as to how you're telling me stories about working on like, like, on genesis games. On like genesis games yeah when yeah. i <laughs> sworn i was seeing videos of you as a kid so no, he was just really young. Yeah. 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 Was that common in the industry? No, no. No. Okay. I mean, I mean, partially because to be skilled in, you know, a trade, you had to be a bit older usually, right? True. But when, when it was something like 3D games, I'd have to wonder or assume that uh, a lot of the people coming out of school are kind of the first generation in that sector who actually have those skills, correct? So, like... Yeah, I was like one of the first waves actually of, of scholastically trained mm-hmm. 3D artists because everybody else just kind of learned it while they were, you know, they they were at a game company or something and the game company said, well, we want to try this 3D graphics thing, bought a bunch of machines and software and just said, like, go ahead and learn it, right? Because there's no other, there was no other way to learn it at that time, you know? It was right. like before, probably before like 94, something like that. Okay, so here you are. So you're working now at, um, what did you say? It was Atari Midway? Yeah, Atari Midway. It was the arcade uh, side of Atari. Right, yeah. and so Because the, there was actually two branches, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I know Midway, of course, had offices out in Chicago. Um, right, yeah. Did you, did you work alongside <laughs> any of those, those Midway guys, or was it really kind of siloed in terms of the Chicago yeah, office? It, it was really siloed, like... Um, in fact, there were some products at the Atari Games office which actually competed with Midway's products at times. Yeah. And I always thought that was weird. It was like, you know, Midway owns this company. Why are we making a product that's kind of competing with Midway? You know, it's like there was some futuristic racing games that kind of competed. And then there was, um, I forget if Midway, Midway made the grid, right? Yes, because the grid's like all over the place at Galloping Ghost. Right. So Atari made something called War, mm-hmm. which was an arcade first-person shooter. I think that was actually before the grid, though. But there was—it was very similar timing for a lot of these games, and I, I just thought it was confusing and bizarre. <laughs> right. Yeah, because typically, like at a studio, like maybe even a film studio, someone would pitch an idea, and they go, "Oh no, we already have that in development." Right. I mean, like. I thought for sure Midway would be like, hey, uh, can you do something else? Or, Interesting. Or, or maybe Midway would shut theirs down if they liked Atari's better, but they didn't really do that. It was, yeah, that was bizarre. So your work on Gauntlet Legends, what did that uh, include? Like, what, what sort of things did you do on the game? So th- this, is my, this is my tragic tale. <laughs> mm. But um, I, I worked on a bunch of animation for an intro a like you lost kind of cinematic and a ending cinematic none of which made it in the game oh no uh, yeah well 
some stuff I did actually did make it in the game. I'll get over that soon. But um, the I spent months and months animating these you know the sequences and some of them complemented the arcade pre-rendered video because obviously nintendo 64 uh you can't just slap the pre-rendered video in there because the cartridge size was too small right right so we need to make a real-time version of these uh cinematics for playback right on the n64 and what ended up happening is i did a bunch of work and they said well I was using a program called Lightwave at the time. They said, well, we can't use the data out of Lightwave because it doesn't have any um, skeletal binding information, which is probably really technical for you guys, but it's like the puppet of, of a character has a virtual skeleton in it. Mm-hmm. But Lightwave wouldn't export the data for that. So they said, well, unfortunately, you have to redo some of your work in um, a program called uh, Alias. Oh no, no, sorry. I think it. Yeah, it was Alias Power Animator, which was the software that came before Maya. If okay. anybody knows three uh, D softwares, and so I redid practically everything in um, Alias Power Animator, and then they said, "Okay, well, we'll try and implement it." So they got all the data out of it from me, and they, you know, they already had the character models and stuff from the game, and they. <laughs> They, they said, well, we have to create a task for one of the programmers to create a movie player for it. Mm. And that task just kept getting passed around and passed around to people. Right. And it seemed like nobody had time for it, which is understandable. Like, we were really, like, crunching to get this thing done. Um, and when it came down to it, uh, it just never, they just never actually had the time to implement all the animation. But would you say it was a learning process, though? Like, oh, certainly, yeah. It was. I I can imagine it. It was probably pretty crushing that one of your earliest projects you have uh, work that makes it on you know goes onto the cutting room floor. But yeah, <laughs> that's nothing new. I'd suspect in the games industry. Oh no, no, that's right. that's actually kind of hard, fortunately. Yeah, there's always stuff that gets cut. I mean, on a lot of decently managed, you know, projects, like a lot of stuff will make it in, but, um, you know, things can happen in any project. It's, you know. So how, how would you describe working on the N64? Like what, what is it like? Well, so I think the perspective on it is a little strange probably because the tools that we had to use to work on the N64 were terrible. So this, the system itself was very slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of people talk about, oh, the N64 is so powerful. And actually, in some ways, that's true. But the system was actually very slow because of a uh, hardware bottleneck that it had um, between the CPU and the GPU trying to access memory. So you'd have to stop drawing your graphics if you wanted to calculate something, and you'd have to stop calculating something to draw your graphics, if that makes any sense. And unfortunately, that was a big problem for that system, which is why everything's so low poly on it. Um, But the experience for me was mostly fighting with really old 3D tools. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Everything these days is so much easier to use and so much faster. 
like it's actually much more it's much easier to be very productive today whereas back then everything was kind of like tough and you had to you had to make textures that were tiny mm -hmm. and when I say when I say tiny I mean like you know desktop icon size you know like 32 by 32 you know um, and you'll, you can only have a poly count of like, you know, 100 to 300 polygons. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about like triangles. So like the lowest polygon character that you probably see from a distance, you wouldn't see them up close necessarily, but um, like 100 polygons is barely enough to make something that looks human at all. Right. So, and, and even then you have to make compromises. So it's- Right, yeah. And so at this time, the-, the difficult, but it's like, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the N64 was kind of on its way out too, right? Uh, I think it was sort of in the mid-cycle still, but yeah, I think it, I think it was starting to go kind of out. It, this was 98, 99. Of course. So yeah, so you're yeah. seeing in the magazines, you're seeing what the Dreamcast is looking like. You've already right. experienced the, the PlayStation so well. The uh, N64 is still alive and well. I'm trying to remember... George, maybe you can correct me, but didn't like Banjo Kazooie release around Sonic Adventure? I think it, I, I, I think, well, I, I'm Probably thinking Banjo like uh, Conquer released in 99, I think. Yeah. Oh, so, right. So, yeah. So, I mean, they were still releasing big hits on the 64 when the Dreamcast was coming out. And I think even Final Fantasy VIII came out around the same time, like we That's did the right. notes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, for oh, you, that is right. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, Kiyoshi, were you kind of itching to move on to something more powerful at this point? I just wanted an easier uh, path to development. So yeah, I mean, more powerful <laughs> definitely allows for that. And so, have, <laughs> did have you worked on any PlayStation games? Uh, I haven't worked on any PS One games. Okay, that's so. Right. My knowledge of that hardware is a little spotty, just because it's all sort of just hearsay, right? Like I. I've heard things about it, but I don't really know how difficult it was. I think for art, it probably was pretty difficult, though, because what you see is not what you get. Like, right. you put your polygon models in the game, and they're, like, swimming and, like, clipping, and... <laughs> like, the, the PS1 has real... Like, they, they were doing the best thing they could possibly do for the price that they wanted that at, you know what I mean, for the time. And uh, that's really what a lot of people should try to understand about a lot of these consoles is, you know, yes, they could have had better 3D graphics, right? Right. But the console would have been, you know, twice as expensive, maybe more, right? So um, what they tried to do is they tried to hit a price point because they thought, well, this is what people are willing to spend. And then they try to make up clever hardware to, you know, make it work, right? And this is like sort of the story of the video game industry up till, actually till the Dreamcast, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. So let's talk about that. So did you make the jump right from the N64 to the Dreamcast? I did, yeah. So what was, that, what was that like? Did you like, like what was your workstation like then? So did you have a development kit at arm's reach? Uh, what were we doing? I think in my case, I didn't have a dev kit. All the programmers had dev kits. Right. So what I would do is I would make assets and give it to them, and then they would uh, implement. So no, I, I didn't have personal access to a dev kit, but um, I mean, I saw them all over the office. And okay. And so I would, I would work with the programmers to make sure everything was, was correct, you know. Right. And 
And so did you, did you left <clears throat> Midway to work on World So Wars I got laid off. Okay. I got laid off after, um, after Gauntlet. I see. And one of my friends who had left earlier had gone to um, a, a small company called Blue Shift, actually, mm -hmm. which was, it wasn't uh, Visual Concepts or the 2K Sports uh, game company, actually. It was a small company called Blue Shift. Right. And Blue Shift got a contract to do World Series Baseball. So I actually, since my friend went there, he said, hey, we need people, and you're really good with, you know, uh, tech art, it was actually called tech art, like the skeletal setup, animation features, and like character stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, I got invited to go there and actually help train other people how to use a software called Maya. Um, because they were moving off of like older tools, some of them, some of which were the same as what Midway used at the time. I see. Okay. So, because from what I remember, so with the Sega sports branding, what Sega was really doing was they were kind of bringing all of these sports games under one umbrella, and they weren't really hiding the fact that there were different developers. I know they had... Um, no, I mean, our logo for Blue Shift was on... Right, was yeah. Like, so, up front, you know, so... They, I know Sega of America rolled the Power Smash games into it with Tennis 2K2. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, they had the visual concept stuff. So how did Sega get involved with this company? Was this something that Sega was like, we need a baseball game for our console. Can you do it? Or was it the other way so, around? So I'm actually not sure because, um, well, the CEO of the company, or the, sorry, the president, not the CEO, um, was John Solwitz. And John Solwitz had done Cyberball at Atari. And... Um, I don't know if he was really known for sports. I mean, he did Paperboy also, but like, but so he was an old school guy with some, you know, reputation, right? And um, he really, that guy loves baseball. He loves baseball. So I think he, he just pitched really well to Visual Concepts. And uh, we had a really good team. Like we had really good programmers and stuff. And uh, I guess Visual Concepts took a chance on us. I, I don't really know, but. Um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, he had that history and he also loved baseball. So I think that was maybe what they based on. <laughs> so um, I always remember when these sports games came out because, like, I remember reading reviews of it. And, like, um, it always seemed to me that, like, the NFL 2K is what got most of the money from Sega for, like, advertisement. And then it was the NBA, and then right. like the NHL and the MLB games kind of didn't get as much advertisement as they should have. Um, do you do you think that that's like true, or do you like does that do you feel that in the company or nah? Not really. I mean, we were under contract, so we we're just you know we're working for whatever they want to do, right? So um, unfortunately, I, I actually didn't even know what kind of advertising budget our game had. To and like, I know you're not like you didn't grow up watching baseball. So like, how do you get no, into no. something like this? Did you have to watch baseball and see how you know players? I, I actually, I did. I, I I would actually like stock a lot of photos from baseball. I went to a game uh, to experience it in real life, just to try to get the feel, the atmosphere of the game correct. You know, the colors, everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, motion, everything. Uh, but yeah, so. I'm not personally like a huge baseball fan. I've actually been to baseball games a few times, but um, 
other than that, yeah, it was mostly just collecting a lot of resources uh, for art, you know, to make sure that the visuals looked as correct as we could get them. So when you were working on the game, were you aware of World Series Baseball 2K1 and kind of how Sega saw it as kind of a failure in the sense that, from what I remember, like the controls weren't all that great. Um, I heard the graphics, okay, so the graphics were good. The graphics were very good, actually. Yeah. And that's something that always kind of uh, was in the back of my mind while I was working on, you know, our, our game, which would be seen as a sequel. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like we, we got, we have different graphics. I don't think they're necessarily worse, but um, yeah, the, uh, I forget who did it. Was it WoW or? Um, it was WoW Entertainment, yeah. It was WoW. Yeah. And so that's that's what I find so interesting, yeah, because you have uh, someone like WoW working, it's an adaptation of, uh, I have my notes here, Super Major League. Right, so the arcade game yeah. is why the gameplay wasn't good. Because the arcade game had a little virtual, like, spring-loaded bat or something, from what I heard. Mm -hmm. And you can't control your fielders, because you didn't have, um, like, joystick and buttons, like a normal, you know, arcade game. And so they, they automated the fielders. But when they converted it to console, they didn't actually update it to have more, you know, console control type. Well, I guess what people expect, you know what I mean? I want to be able to control my fielders and my, you know, strategies and all this other stuff. And the arcade game was very simple, you know? Right. And it was a direct port. So it got fairly bad reviews, I think, because of that. That's interesting because the, uh, the Virtua Tennis games were so well-loved and popular that, that when they rolled it into Tennis 2K2, I mean, it just, it looked like an amazing sports game. I don't think anyone batted an eye, but... No. <laughs> yeah, have, I mean, you have a very similar thing happening here where they're like, well, let's roll our, our baseball game in. And I have to wonder if that was them kind of saving money um, so that they didn't have to have visual concepts do so much work. Um, it's possible that they didn't have, um, like, enough headcount or, like, a, an open skew or something to actually make a baseball game. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that it was a continuation of an ongoing series that was on Genesis, Saturn... Um, so th there definitely was that World Series baseball brand. I know I've seen there was. the Genesis ones before. Um, there was also that expectation from the people who liked the World Series baseball franchise. Right. And, uh, that was actually the thing that we were trying to appease the most. It was um, what people loved about previous World Series baseballs, as well as other baseball games uh, you know, of that time. Uh, we were trying to make sure our game was at least as good as those games, you know? Yeah, and that's something that's always fascinated me about all, any sports game adaptation, really, is that you're not playing, for example, football or baseball. You're playing an approximation that uses the rules... Right. <laughs> ...but uses very different um, techniques in order to execute those things. So instead of having the muscle strength to swing a bat and hit a ball and you have that dexterity and the hand-eye coordination... In some in some ways in some games it's like a mini game where it's like you know can you line up the line to the other line and hit the button at the right time, right? Um, and so I always appreciate when a game feels as close as it can to the real thing despite you just pushing buttons and moving joysticks, um, but at the same time sometimes it it can become more fun to play something that isn't baseball 
but is. So um, right. I mean, I, I think the two K games, especially in the Dreamcast era, yeah. had a a a more arcade influenced feel to them. Mm-hmm. At least in my in my opinion, like I played an NFL two K two game, uh, but like or was it two K one before we while we were working on our uh, our game, right? And uh, I noticed that the game would be extremely arcadey if you were allowed to play the same team against itself. Mm. Because it was like player skill mattered a lot in that game. Like it was, it was actually really fun to play because I felt like you know if you had the the hand eye coordination and dexterity, you could run plays that were just you know bonkers, right? Right. Whereas in a lot of sports games, they actually tone your player skill down, you know, relative to which player you're using, right? Right. So, it, it felt like wow, you know. These the Dreamcast sports games felt to me more arcade-like than um, like simulation sports-like. Now our our game is actually more simulate sim- simulation-like than the the 2K NFL game. I didn't actually play the NBA. I'm not sure about that one, but um, we we were supposed to sort of evaluate you know some stuff from that. And we ended up playing it, and I was like, oh, this is really good. Yeah, because because I like player skill games you know <laughs> so. of course so so when you were approaching the project it was really um to outdo the previous one from sega themselves to uh keep the franchise itself in mind to satisfy longtime players right keep the and, history yeah. and to create something that was in line with the other 2k titles coming out exactly yep so how do, how did you feel like in the end looking at the finished product? How do you think you did? I think we did actually very well, especially for the the time schedule. We actually ran over a bit, which was unfortunate, but um, we made it in time for the World Series. Oh, nice! <laughs> so how appropriate, right? Right. <laughs> um, we were actually supposed to release at their usual cadence, where they come out. I think it's like during spring training or something. It's like at the beginning of you know the season. But we ended up coming out near the end of the season, um, just because it was so hard to get the whole game together by then. Like there was a lot of features. There was online features. There was, you know, fantasy baseball features, all sorts of stuff. So. Um, and so you saw the competition at the time, right? Like there was a bunch of other baseball games. Um, yeah, any, did you had one of the biggest. Yeah, did you play those games in the office, and did you guys take notes of what they did and what you guys wanted to do differently? Uh, yeah, we did actually. We, we noticed like you know which games had good reviews on certain aspects of the game, and we definitely look at those games just to make sure that we weren't missing something at least. You know what I mean? Um, we had our own gameplay style. Like uh, I think 3DOs was high heat baseball, and that game was actually very popular at the time. And like the batting was mostly broken up into quadrants, where like you'd have like hot and cold zones for the batters, and you try to pitch it into the cold zone, right? Yeah. And so we actually we we were influenced by that. So batters on our game do have like cold zones and hot zones and stuff like that. Um, but we have our own take on it. Like if you have a batter who's not very good, you have a very small like hit radius to hit the ball. But if you have like a slugger, like you know somebody who could bat home runs all the time, your hit radius would be really big, and you can just like just nail it, right? <laughs> so, um, 
we, we did actually look at a lot of uh, other baseball games to see what they were doing, what their style was, e even for just graphics and things like that, too. Now, have you ever played the Smilebit baseball games? Have you seen those? I actually ha have not, actually. Okay, so yeah, Smilebit actually made some baseball games for Dreamcast. I think they actually made... There's probably about three or four different ones. I'm not sure how different they are in terms of, like... Some might just be like on new online components or updates, but it's called, I think, like Pro Yaku Team Baseball something something. Um, but it's these big head little body guys who have under. Oh, oh, those guys. Um, yeah. We did. We looked at those games, actually. We did. Yeah. Uh, we didn't. I don't think we played them. Uh, there was video of it, so we, we checked it out. But, they're uh, very strange. If you ever come across one, because they're always super cheap at like import shops i always see them for like five bucks each it's worth picking one up <laughs> okay yeah. check it out um, for sure so was there an online component to the uh to 2k2 yes and actually that was one of the things i was gonna tell you guys about is you can actually play the game online again today if you like why are we talking <laughs> to you then why aren't we <laughs> why aren't you playing world series <laughs> exactly no, um there's been some fans who've set up new servers for the uh, online. I think they did it mostly for Fantasy Star Online, which is obvious, right? Like, right. set those servers back up. But um, they've been trying to set up all the Dreamcast online games again so that you can play them again uh, online. I don't know what their population's like, but mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming you could play with friends if nothing else, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, How does that make you feel? I mean, it's great. I mean, the, the thing that it it did for me is people started releasing video of people playing World Series baseball in HD and stuff, and it's like, whoa, it's crazy. <laughs> so you can go on YouTube right now and you can see HD video of World Series baseball 2K2 being played online. <laughs> That's really awesome. Oh wow! And um, you all, and you also I didn't expect to see that, obviously. <laughs> and you also did 2K3, which uh, was not on the Dreamcast. And how was so you? We're working in the industry when the Dreamcast was basically dead, right? Or died. Well, for the full life cycle of the console. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so what's your, like, did you, were you a Dreamcast, like, uh, game? Did you play Dreamcast games, or were you too busy working, or were you a no, fan no, of No, I played a lot of Dreamcast games, yeah. And I, which games in that era were, like, you looked at them and you're like, wow, this is really cool animation, or uh, this is very next generation any games that pop in your head well so probably really obvious but soul caliber was yeah the one that really turned my head the most um particularly because there was a team making a fighting game at atari and they had a soul caliber arcade machine at atari so we'd play that like every day and when I started seeing images and like videos of Soul Calibur on Dreamcast, I was like, "Are you kidding? This is way better than, you know, what the arcade game looks like." And I, I mean, I knew that the arcade game was like PS One hardware, right? But like, you can throw a lot of resources at an arcade game. So that was something that I wasn't really expecting to see. Yeah, and, and that was yeah. just a launch title. Yeah, that was a launch title. Well, it was a launch title in the U.S. Yeah, it's in the U.S. I was so hyped for that game that I bought a Dreamcast on the Japanese launch. Mm. And so I actually had to wait <laughs> until that game came out. But um, I played Sonic Adventure and other games uh, in the meantime. 
What are your thoughts on motion capture? Like, I know uh, Visual Concepts did a lot of that for um, their own games, and also they did work on Sonic Adventure 2. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on it? Motion capture is great for realistic-looking humans, I think. Like, you know, um, it really cuts down on the time it takes to, you know, do animations and stuff. Mm-hmm. Once you start getting into more stylized characters, I, I don't really... I don't enjoy motion capture on stylized characters nearly as much. Uh, I feel like you can use it as a base sometimes, but um, if you use it just, like, straight up, it, it looks really kind of weird on like cartoony characters a lot of times because it's not pushed enough. You know what I mean? Like you don't, it doesn't have that cartoony sort of exaggeration to it. So I like motion capture when it's used appropriately. Right. Is what I would say. I, yeah. I, wasn't, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if it was like something you were afraid of or you hated or something like that. Um, <laughs> Well, have you heard from people who hate it? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I always wonder. I, I don't know. I hear, I, I think it was something more in the, maybe in the, the 2000s where people were kind of getting afraid that there were too, there was too much like motion capture uh, CG animation going on. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah. so there was this fear that their jobs would become obsolete or something like that. Um, well, I, I mean, even if, even if you mocap something, and this yeah. is something I think maybe a lot of people don't really realize, even if you motion capture something, there's an animator or more, you know, multiple animators probably sitting there making sure the mocap looks right. Right. Yeah, and you, you can't get away with just using a motion, like, do a motion. Okay, great, you're done. And the game now has an animation that looks perfect. No, 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 no. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So you still have to have an animation team to... <laughs> Make sure the mocap actually looks, you know, good and correct. And like mocap does all sorts of bad things you you wouldn't realize. Like you like have a character like pointing and their finger will be jittering or something. Like your you know arm will be vibrating because there's noise in the signal. You know. And, yeah. Or, no, there's, there's you know maybe like... the height of the actor doesn't match the height of your character, and then suddenly their feet are going through the floor and. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's all sorts of problems that can come up. And there's uh, always that, on. yeah, there's always tweaking and like sweetening needed uh, right. on the animation end. So when you learn, so how did you learn that the Dreamcast was on the way out? And were you already working on consoles like PS2 and Xbox that it didn't really affect you professionally? Or was it something? Professionally, that- it didn't affect me because. Okay. I mean, one year after 2K2, we were on PS2, GameCube, Xbox. Right. So it was like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, we're on the systems that are still around, right? Uh, right. So what was it like making that jump? Um, was there there anything you learned from going from Dreamcast development to the other consoles, or was it really just like another another day at work? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, for me, there was a lot of. It, it, it was pretty transparent because I was just making assets, right? So, um, the big, I think the biggest difference was the newer systems had more capability. So, um, there's something called vert weighting when you're uh, setting up skeletons for characters, mm-hmm. and it makes it so your elbows bend smoothly, and you're, you know, basically the verts move with the virtual bones in the character, and on PS1. And on a lot of Dreamcast games, you'll probably notice this if you look hard enough. Um, the verts were bound to the bones, 
uh, which with something called a rigid bind. So each bone had its own vertices. And those vertices would actually move with the bone, right? The problem is that you don't want all the vertices to move with a single bone. You want some of the vertices to move between two bones. So they would be influenced by two or three bones sometimes, like stuff in like your uh, hip area, for mm -hmm. example, needs three influences rather than two influences. Right. And um, <clears throat> if you only have one influence, which is what most games had at the time, you will have a very weird looking bend for your limbs. And that's something that um, Virtua Fighter 3 TB actually has very obvious uh, rigid binding, for example, whereas the arcade game was smooth. Hmm. And um, for World Series Baseball, this is something that we did, which was actually sort of clever. We said, okay, well, the Dreamcast, the processor is actually slow enough where you can't really get away with doing smooth binding. It takes a lot of floating point calculation. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of at a premium at that time for those consoles. But um, what we did is we actually made it so that you could actually use five values. And the, and the system would interpolate between the, the five values. And so we could have like a mid value and then one that was biased towards one bone and then biased towards the other bone and then one that's solid for each bone. Hmm. So we actually have smooth arm bends and stuff but, in our game. But the, the power needed to do all that would be jumping around between different points on the skeleton then? Well, so it's not it's not a power thing. It was more like we found a clever workaround okay. where the system already knows what to do with those verts. It's not like trying to calculate it every frame. It already knows what that vert should do. Hmm. So it moves those verts appropriately every frame. And it doesn't have to do a lot of calculations. It just says, oh, you know, take this percentage or something. It does like a simple math on it. Wow. And, and because there's very few of them, you know, um, in terms of how many that we're trying to process, it was fast enough. I think Soul Calibur might be doing something similar also, because it, it didn't have the weird uh, one per, or one bone uh, weighting on it. And by that you mean like the hinge, the sort of hinge kind of... Uh... Right, I mean, it, it's especially obvious on like uh, knees and elbows. Mm -hmm. Right, because there's there's three kinds of joints. There's the uh, ball and socket, the hinge, and then I guess like the advanced hinge. Right. So you'll see a big like flat polygon. Yeah. Uh, if they have just one influence, whereas it'll be it'll be rounded if if they have more than one influence. Because like I, I'm, just, I'm trying to kind of, I I follow you. I'm just kind of wrapping my head around the whole idea of. <laughs> It's kind of technical. It is yeah. technical, but it's fascinating <laughs> to me. So I'm thinking back to like older games now, and, and I'm, I'm seeing those limitations in their workarounds, not just in um, what you're talking about, but also in animation. So like, for example, a character waving, oh, yeah. like, waving wouldn't just like wiggle their wrist. They would just put their hand in the air and move their whole arm around. Um, <laughs> Very well, I mean, there's there's not a lot of difference between those two things, right? But it, it was more like um, how many keyframes could you use, and could you use smooth keyframes, for example? Um, so if if a character seems to like jerk around, like if you look at um, my favorite example is Castlevania on the N sixty four. They used linear keys on that game, and it's super obvious because the characters will move in a very unnatural way when they're uh, 
animating. Hmm. Like in, in cutscenes and stuff. Right. But if you have smooth keys, then your characters will have very smooth, um, like, joint motions, I should say. Uh, I see. But in Castlevania on N64, they went with linear. And you can see that their arm will move in sort of just, like, this one motion. And then it'll, it'll like, stop. And then, like, part, another part will move and stuff. It was really bizarre looking. <laughs> yeah, like, when almost... you really look at it, it's really strange. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about now. It's It's a very robotic movement, like... My arm yeah, has moved. My arm has moved now to move my body. Now to move <laughs> my leg. Yeah, right. It's fascinating. So it really is. God, there's a lot of processing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I just learned about all these things as I kind of went along, right? So that's partially why I'm on here because I wanted a lot of your audience, like who, you know, what, what's the behind the scenes, right? You know, right, of you... course. What do I see that other people don't see, right? So. Oh, of course. And you never really think of just how difficult these things are. They seem so uh, easy when you're just playing the game and you're seeing it play out. But um, Right. It seems it seems so normal. It's like, oh, well, they, they move, right? Like, they, they move naturally, right? Like, that's that's what you expect. But right. no, there's actually a lot that goes into it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, it's reminding me a lot of, like, when I would watch... Um, older maybe 90s or 2000s behind the scenes for uh, CG animation and they would talk about just how they would have to like forego having a character wear a cloak because of some sort of reason and you're like wait oh, so yeah. because, because there are three characters in the scene one of them cannot have a cloak you know <laughs> and it's like right. nope <laughs> you know because it's it's just it's fascinating that there's these these limitations that you're working with. Well, and, so you, you know how a lot of uh, Western games have bald space marines or yeah. women women with ponytails. Yeah, that's that's another technical limitation uh, reason. Right. It's because yeah. like hair, like making hair for one, it, at, especially in the earlier uh, 3D game days, was computationally expensive on the rendering end because you had to have transparency for a lot of hairstyles and transparency wasn't cheap at all um, even on Dreamcast transparency wasn't cheap actually and then um, also you don't want to have potential for hair to collide with the body because that means your animators have to go in and make sure the hair doesn't collide with the body for a whole animation you know <laughs> and if you if you try to simulate clothing or hair, you have to rely on these physics programs to not have the, that stuff collide with the body, and uh, you just get into a lot of visual art, like you know, bad stuff, right? If if it if it does the wrong thing, it right. looks really bad. Yeah, I've I've seen you know like I'm sure you've seen plenty of that. <laughs> yeah, I've seen like the hair kind of like dancing on the shoulder unnaturally, yes. just kind of like going kind of wild. Um, Especially like long ponytails. If yeah. they cross the character's shoulder, it'll look like some sort of snake that's trying to like <laughs> get away from its tail or something. That's it's very right. Yeah, I've seen that a lot in like fighting games. Actually, I I know. Um, yep. Sarah, <laughs> yeah. Sarah Bryant in the Virtua Fighter games. Her her ponytail can like go a little crazy sometimes. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so when you went on from two K two to two K three, was there a big shift um, in terms of? development of the game, gameplay? Uh... No, it was more of just refinement, really. Yeah. Um, 
we had the opportunity, especially since we were on the Xbox, we could up-res a lot of the textures. Um, we added more polygons to the character models. They had like wrinkles in their clothing and stuff that we added. Hmm. Uh, there was also a few more little effects, like um, we had a, a shine on the helmet, and I forget, I think we might have had some reflection or something. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the game ran very well on the other consoles, though, because it was coming from the Dreamcast. Mm -hmm. And since those consoles were like a, at least a half step um, like later in the generation, uh, like porting it to those consoles wasn't that big of a headache or anything. Now, how did how did you handle the um, stadiums? Do you re remember? Was it two dimensional? So class? I wasn't I wasn't responsible for the stadiums. Okay. But the um, there was a, a team. We actually had an outsourced team working on the stadiums, and yeah, the crowd was actually uh, animated sprites that okay. were projected onto transparent polygons. And did you? Did you like work in any of the staff from the game on those, or was that all outsourced as well? That was all outsourced. Okay, okay. I think they actually captured um, video of people, and oh, wow. then and mapped that onto the, the stadium, uh, like the people in the stadium. You know. So, did they? Did they? So they never made the shift to full three D though at that era. Uh, I don't think in that era. No. no. Okay. Uh, not even for the Xbox. I think we stuck with the uh, transparencies. Interesting. Wow. And, and so, I see, well, I was going to say, uh, I see that your other credit on the nose, it's The Sims 2. Like, oh, how, yeah. <laughs> how, how do you go from doing baseball games to the, the Sims 2, which is, let's be honest, probably one of like the broadest selling games of all time like moms play it my my friends that i know in real life are like shamefully play it like i have a friend on steam that pops up like at midnight and he has like he plays the sims 3 but like he has like a thousand hours on it and he's always telling me how addicted he is to those games so like how do you make that jump well i wanted to go over a few more things on the dreamcast but i will tell oh, you yeah. how i made the jump um yeah. what one of my friends from blue shift went to Maxis, and I actually had always been sort of a fan of some of the Maxis games. I used to play like a lot of Sim Earth and a game called Robosport. And so when he said they had a job opening at Maxis, um, stuff was kind of winding down at Blue Shift. Uh, they were a contract company, and they didn't always get contracts. Like um, it, it was hard to make ends meet after a while, um, especially with the shift over of like 2K games, visual concepts, and all that stuff. Um, so we couldn't keep working on baseball and like you know the contracts were just not coming in sometimes so a lot of staff started moving out of blue shift and that's how i ended up at maxis but um one of the things i wanted to talk about on the dreamcast which is a huge deal in world series baseball that no like i don't know if any other uh dreamcast game ever did you, you have to correct me if i'm wrong you might have to dig into this one but um we had self-shadowed players Hmm. And self-shadowing, if people don't know, is where you have a light, right, coming down like the sun, virtual sun, and your shadow casts usually on the ground, right? You have a character and shadow cast on the ground, and the the 3D graphics card will do, you know, shading on the body, right? Right. But what it usually doesn't do is it doesn't usually cast a shadow from the character it's shading to itself. 
right? If you have a, a say a baseball cap, right? If you see somebody wearing a baseball cap in bright sun, you'll see a big shadow across their face. Mm -hmm. And we wanted that feel because it feels much more realistic, especially when you're outdoors, you know, in direct sun, to have self-shadowing on a character. And uh, we actually devised a, a method of making a very low polygon version of the character that would act as a shadow mask. Hmm. And uh, our lead programmer, John Brooks, he actually programmed a, a way to take that character and stretch it through the floor, essentially. But everything it, it touched would get shadowed by that shadow mask. And um, during that generation, that was a huge deal. That was like... Uh, something you wouldn't really see. Like, Sonic Adventure used that technology, but it was just to cast his shadow on the ground. Right. It wasn't to cast the shadow on himself. And, I mean, for Sonic, he probably wouldn't want that anyway. It'd probably look really strange. Yeah. But um, for a game like a baseball game, to make it look more realistic, you want that realistic-looking lighting, right? And um, that was something... It, it actually really, really taxed the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast had a lot of trouble drawing that shadow. Um... And what it turned out was, if you made the shadow angle too much, um, the way the Dreamcast renders is in these little tiles. So it breaks the screen up into all these little squares, and it renders each square. Hmm. And if you took up too many squares with that shadow mask, the, the Dreamcast would suddenly take this huge frame rate hit. And we had to run it at 60, because it's you know sports game. So. I wish more people these days would say we have to run at 60. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we, we were making sure the game ran at 60 frames per second, which is why the, the shadow doesn't move too far off the character. It looked really nice when it moved, like when we had like a, you know, we tried like sunset like lighting and stuff, mm -hmm. but it was it was too much, so we couldn't do that. But um, Wow. But the direct sunlight thing really looks nice, and especially if you go back and look at it today, um, it really stands out among a lot of the games in that generation because of that feature, I think. Wow, that's really cool. What other uh, Dreamcast development notes did you have? Oh, uh, let's see. So one of the really great things about Dreamcast, this, this is one of the things I wanted to compare with the PS2, because the PS2 is known to be this powerhouse console for that generation. I mean, the, Dream, the Xbox was even more powerful, but like, the PS2 actually was very powerful for its generation. Um, but the thing that it, I, I don't know why Sony did this, but Sony decided that they didn't need very much uh, video RAM for the graphics card in the system. I think it has like, let me see, I have notes on the PS2. I think it had like two megabytes. Hmm. Oh no, four megabytes. It has four megabytes of RAM for just for the video, right? For like texturing and polygons and stuff. The Dreamcast has eight megabytes to start. So the Dreamcast had twice as much just up front, right? Mm -hmm. So already that's better, right? But at the same time, the, the Dreamcast also used a modern, like a very contemporary style graphics card. I, you guys were going over when you did your, um, your Dreamcast uh, memories thing mm -hmm. the other day. I, I noticed that you guys were talking about how Sega was looking into like the 3D effects, you know, other graphics cards, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And um, what they end up going with? They went with a uh, 
what's it say? Uh, NEC Power VR2, right? And the Power VR2 is very similar to like an NVIDIA graphics card, for example, like the stuff you have in your machine today. And it actually has texture compression and it uses Microsoft's DXT1 texture compression. So now your eight megabytes of, of video RAM can now support up to like, I think it was like 16 megabytes virtual because of compression. And so if you look at Dreamcast games, one thing you'll notice is that Dreamcast has very, very crisp, clear, beautiful textures for its generation. Yeah. And like, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what your impression is, but like when I look at PS2 games, and I look at Dreamcast games, especially like early PS2 games, there's like blurry mess, you know, it's just like, they might have a lot of polygons, but the check texturing is very blurry. And then yeah. like you look you look at like Sonic Adventure 2 or something like that. And it's just like super crisp and clean and looks amazing, you know. Um, and, and like that was one of the things I always thought Dreamcast had the other systems of that generation like weren't taken care of as well. And uh, like I, I think the, the GameCube and the X well, especially the Xbox. Xbox was just a PC in a box. So it was like a ridiculously powerful system at that time. But um, like the PS2 and the GameCube. Uh, the Dreamcast actually came pretty close to those in a lot of ways, and sometimes surpassed them, uh, especially with like their, its texturing ability. And the thing is, if if you have that much texture RAM, you, your graphics actually get cleaner because you can have what's called a MIP map as well. And a, a a MIP map makes it so that when you look into the distance, your textures don't sparkle. And that's another issue that PS2 had a lot was sparkling textures. So that was like one, one of Dreamcast's big, big, you know, um, selling points for me is that you could just use tons of texture. And actually for the baseball game, that was actually a godsend because we could actually paint those pinstripes on the characters and not have them be like just, you know, really junky looking, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's interesting you bring up, yeah, because I was thinking, when I was thinking of super crisp textures on the Dreamcast, Sonic Adventure 2 is the first thing to jump to my mind, um, especially in, like, the space levels where you look at some of those doors and just the detail on them is insane. Yeah, and it's like stuff you wouldn't necessarily see on PS2, even with all of its extra ability. You know? Absolutely, like, yeah, and I was, I mean, of course, at the time I was a bit of a fanboy, and I still of course, of but course. <laughs> I, would at, I would look at PS2 and I'm like, this looks jaggy. This looks, uh, this looks blurry. I don't understand why people are looking at this and saying it's better than the Dreamcast. It just, it didn't make sense to me. But I guess that was the emotion engine. You know, people were getting all these cool buzzwords, and they're like, it has the emotion engine. It, it it was just marketing hype at the time because I mean, if you looked at the games, like the pre-release footage of like a lot of the games. They were just, yeah, they were a mess. They were, like, blurry, like, they just... I mean, they, like I said, they had a lot of polygons a lot of times. Like, characters were more detailed. For sure. Um, because that's something that the Emotion Engine was very, very good at. It could it could push polygons like no one's business. But right. um, but they had, you know, they had trade-offs, right? Like, where do you spend your money? Well, they didn't spend it on the VRAM, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Um, and so the screen draw just wasn't as clean, and the textures were not nearly as nice, and... Yeah, that early generation of PS2 is not very good looking, actually. 
did you have a preferred console to work on looking back? Um, the Dreamcast was actually, in hindsight, was a very nice console to work on. It, it's like I said, it's a very contemporary build um, in terms of its architecture. It, it's actually very close to what we have now in a lot of ways. It's like you have your CPU and your you know graphics unit that draws the polygons, and you have a big bank of RAM for your textures, and you have you know online capability and like it, it you know. Very standard stuff. Like if I build a character in Maya, for example, mm -hmm. I could put it on Dreamcast and be pretty sure it'll look like what I built. Right. Whereas if I did that with PlayStation One or Two, actually, mm -hmm. um, I had this experience because one of our uh, Sims games was on the PS Two, and I had to work with the graphics. And I built the character in Maya, and I'm like, okay, that looks that looks how I expect it to look. And I put it on the PS Two, and I'm like, this doesn't look quite right. <laughs> So just like the what you see is what you get factor, like the Xbox is really nice that way too. Like, mm -hmm. And that of course is very similar to a, a modern PC or a modern video game console. Um, so just in terms of like hassle, you know, how much extra tweaking you need to do or, you know, matching visuals with just the stuff you built, right? Like mm -hmm. the Dreamcast was very easy that way. It was very uh, clean. I think the hardest part was just to make sure that the um, the character waiting, like what I was talking about, right, uh, looked correct. Um, there was always some caveats with that, but it you know it worked out. So, so you made the jump then to the Sims Two, as you mentioned. <clears throat> yes, and I started on the on the PlayStation side of Sims Two. Okay. So was, yeah, I was curious. So it was PS2 games at the time. Yeah. So the Sims 2 that was on PS2, it was um, what else was on? It was on uh, PC. Right. The PC version is the the real version of Sims 2. Right. Uh, not to say that the console ones were not real, but they, <laughs> they they were structured very differently because the console couldn't do what the PC did, mostly because of a hard drive. So you worked on the assets for those games right and did you primarily work did you you moved on to the pc end i'd assume uh later on yeah on my career during during my career at sims 2 uh i, I moved on to pc after a while so i gotta imagine someone in your line of work working on a game like this that's kind of job security for a while oh yeah because yeah sims there, there's people on The Sims who are what I call lifers. Like yeah. they'll just they're gonna stay there. It's like it's very stable. You don't have to crunch all the time a lot of times, and like you get big bonuses sometimes because the the Sims sells so well. Right. Um, that's why I was on it for a while too. It's like well, I'm getting paid a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was yeah, it was very secure. After a while, I, I just wanted to change pace, obviously. But right. So how long did you work on Sims 2 was a good job. I liked to I worked on it. Um, how long was it? I think it was about eight years. Wow. Or, no, 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 no. Five years. Sorry, five years. Felt like eight, right? <laughs> yeah, it felt like eight. <laughs> wow. And so did you just, you grew tired of it? You wanted to move on, try something new? Um, yeah, I mostly just wanted to try something new. So what did you go from there? Uh, well, one of my friends, this was in, I think it was late 2007. Okay. 
I broke off from Sims 2, and one of my friends wanted to create a, a startup game company. So we were in talks, like, you know, for me to work with him and a bunch of other people he knew. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually pitched uh, an idea for an Alice in Wonderland game to Disney. I and Disney seemed, Disney seemed like they were on board with it for a while, but um, then the market crash of 2008 happened. And everything went away. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's when I went back to Maxis, but I went to work with uh, some other friends of mine who were on a different team. And that was the Dark Spore stuff. That was like, part of the Spore team broke off to do Dark Spore, and that's, that's what I joined. And what was the, the work on that like compared to Sims? Oh, well, at that point, it was very different because uh, when I was on Sims, my job actually changed in the middle. So one of the things that I was doing when I started was uh, character graphics and animation setup like I was usually doing. And then after a while, I was doing character creator. So I was doing like all the coordination for all the clothing changing. So like, you know, if you want different parts of your outfit changed, there's actually a difference on the PS2 version versus the PC version. On the PC, you change very large pieces of your outfit. On the PS2, since we didn't have a lot of uh, memory to work with, we actually made it more detailed so you could change like an inner shirt versus an outerwear versus like your hairstyle versus hats versus, you know, like all sorts of stuff. Hmm. And um, I was actually responsible for coordinating all of that between the art team and the programming team. And then after that, I actually went into visual effects. Okay. So my job changed drastically. And then that was still while I was on PC Sims. I was doing visual effects for that game. And then after that, I went to Maxis and I did visual effects on Darkscore. So the visual effects in Darkscore was more like, you know, bullets and explosions and mm -hmm. <laughs> lasers and all that stuff. So um, that was actually fun for me, uh, mm -hmm. but it was very different. So did you did you have any other projects there, or did you move on to what did you move on to next? Uh, that was the Dongate project. After that, okay. And Dongate, I was still doing visual effects, but um, for a MOBA, the schedule is really really harsh. Because we were trying to put out characters every three weeks, mm -hmm. and it was getting so tight that they decided to do it every four weeks, and that was still tight. It was really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, those those last two games are are not even playable because Darkspore was an online only game. Hmm. And after this, the server population went down to a certain point, they just they killed it. Wow. And Dawngate never officially came out. It was only up to beta. So. Oh, wow. You. But like I said, there's video out there if you want to see what those games look like. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to check those out, the video of them. And so from there then you moved on to uh, working on Strike Blazinger? Correct, yeah. Okay, okay. And that brings us up to today. Yep. <laughs> that brings us up so, to today. Wow. So... What made you want to be an independent developer compared to like working at Maxism or working at another company where you have job security, I guess? Well, it's really the opportunity to work with Chris, for example, because we have very similar taste in games and in like character design and 
just all sorts of stuff. Like mm -hmm. we, we really like a lot of the same things. We, we get along very well in terms of like, you know, the theme of games and also, you know, gameplay decisions and everything. So we have a lot of like ideals that match, right? Um, and not only that, but I was really burnt out working in the industry at that point. Like I said, working on uh, a MOBA was very stressful. I can <laughs> so imagine. I wanted a, a change of pace. I also, the other thing is, um, I had never done what's, I guess, I don't know if it's even called an HD game anymore, but like I had never worked on a game that had quote unquote HD graphics. So like very detailed, you know, texturing and um, like normal mapping and, you know, realistic lighting and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I, and so I felt like my skills were actually waning while I was working in the industry. And uh, I wanted to get all that, like I wanted to get back up to speed as an artist. Mm -hmm. um, but I also wanted to sort of stretch my legs, uh, you know, as well. So I figured, well, I know how to do the entire art pipeline. I can do characters, I can do backgrounds, I can do animation, I can do effects, I can, you know, <laughs> I can do everything, right, right, that we need to do. And I've been doing this stuff for years, so I have the experience, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Chris really wanted to get into doing, you know, game design, and he wanted to try his hand at, um, programming in Unity, so we said, okay, let's do it. It's just, you know, he didn't have anything going on at the time and I had just quit my job, so I'm like, all right, <laughs> let's just let's make something, you know? So how did you meet Chris? When did you meet Chris? Wow, I met Chris a, rock, a really, really long time ago at an anime convention. Um, I didn't really know him very well for a while, but I'd seen him around a lot, because he was always, like, cosplaying and um, he'd be win, like winning masquerades and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was hanging around with some friends of mine who are also cosplayers. Um, not, not my wife at the time, but, mm -hmm. um, but we ended up talking a lot about video games at, uh, a convention called Anime LA. And we started, you know, really kind of connecting in a lot of ways about what kind of games we liked. We were, we, you know, he was talking about all these various games. I'm like, oh yeah, those games are great. And, you know, like, and he would talk about how, you know, he told um, the local magazine or the no local newspaper when he won a Nintendo you know, uh, championship in Hawaii. He was talking about Fantasy Star. I'm like, oh, I love Fantasy Star. Fantasy Star is like one of my favorite series of all time. You know, like. And so we kind of clicked on a lot of levels, but like, you know, um, the Sega games actually kind of brought us together too in that way. Cause it was like, oh yeah, so Fantasy Star is your favorite game. Like that's one of my favorites too. And um, I forget a lot of Capcom games. He, he used to work at Capcom. So we talked about a lot of Capcom games. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's funny cause the bulk of my collection on Dreamcast is Capcom. <laughs> <laughs> it had so many just amazing conversions of their arcade you know, fighting games on that system. Oh, so like, I, I own that gray and green ASCII stick and I, I own, you know, all those Capcom games. And it's like, this is amazing. Yeah. So I've got all the Street Fighters, the rival schools, like, you know, everything. <laughs> well, that's, but, um, that's great that you, you two connected like in something more of a fandom or a passion rather than 
you sat like across from him in a cube at a job you both hated or something right. like that. Right, right. Well, we also both found out we worked at Atari, which was kind of trippy too. Yeah, so that that's was... what I was surprised by is that there was no crossover there. No, he had left like just a few months before I joined. It was really bizarre. Like, hey, you worked at Atari? Yeah, I worked at Atari. Well, when, you know? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, man, I can't believe I missed you there, you know? We worked for the same manager, too. It was crazy. <laughs> and now you guys are actually, you're you're not in the same state, correct? No, he moved to Arizona for yeah, that's financial, right. like, personal and financial reasons. So how is it like working uh, in different states on the same game? Well, I would definitely say it's harder. Yeah. Um, we have to make a point to kind of contact each other about various updates and stuff. But um, I don't know. It, it's still working. It's just, you know... It slows the rate of, you know, updates and sort of synergy, you know what I mean? Right, right. Is there ever a thought to, like, lock you two in a room for, like, a month or something? Like, if you ever... I have had that thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely had that thought. <laughs> well, like, can you, like, come out here for a little while and, like, just... Yeah, yeah, I can imagine it's, it's a, a different way of working, but I'm sure you guys make it work. It will work. It'll work, yeah. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to get this done, you know, one way or the other. Absolutely. So. Um, I did want to ask uh, a little bit. Oh, George, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, when you guys, you know, came up with the idea for the game, I, I remember him talking about how it was Fantasy Star meets uh, Space Harrier. Um, what was your idea? That was for, the initial like, idea, yeah. Yeah. And so what's what did you think of, like, the art style? Like, where do you come up with, like... Was it also Fantasy Star, like the early Fantasy Star, not the online? Or did he try to mix the art styles, or do you just try to go on your own thing? So for, for like, visual inspiration, um, it's kind of a combination of a lot of things. It was, uh, Fantasy Star is a big one, actually. I, I do try to reference, um, it's funny, because it's not necessarily the best game in the series, but it's one of my favorites, is Fantasy Star 2. Yeah. That's the one that had the biggest impression on me from the Fantasy Star series. So, like, visual inspiration, I take a lot of it from Fantasy Star 2, but I also get inspired by a lot of anime. There's, like, anime like Bubblegum Crisis or, um, like, just a lot of stuff from the 90s, like mecha shows, you know, various things. Um, Fantasy Star Online, not so much an influence to me, just because I felt like the style changed so much. Um, and we yeah, still yeah. want that, we want that retro kind of 80s to 90s vibe for the game. So I'm really trying to base my influences out of that era. E even like album covers and like, um, like art from the 80s and stuff like that uh, has been an inspiration. And somebody like you that like is really into anime or anime conventions, like, what's your take on this whole like? I I get the I get crap from a lot of people when I say like that new anime has this whole like not all of it. There's a lot. Of, there's always exceptions to the rule, but like they have this like look where like everything looks kind of the samey. Or am I going crazy? Or is it just <laughs> me being old? Uh, I think. Well, so if you look at it in perspective. You're not wrong, but you are wrong in the way that anime looks the same today because anime also looked the same back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm for sure, but like, yeah, select, I guess you. I would say, yeah, like, there's sort of I like guess... stylistic trends that go through anime, and 
those have all been fairly consistent throughout, you know, the eras, essentially. So, like, if you look at, like, early 80s versus, like, late 80s to 90s, it's different. But within their own era, it's the same. Like, it looks very similar. And I don't know exactly how to point that out, but, like, yeah, if you look at, like, go back to, like, one, you know, maybe, like, three- or four-year block of anime, right? And you look at a bunch of anime from that that era, you'll see a lot of similarities in style in that era. And you said Bubblegum Crisis was one of your uh, inspirations. Is there any other animes that you've uh, dug out ideas from? Like, you watched, I don't know, uh, just a regular anime, and then you're like, oh, I I need to have a weapon like that. Oh, well... (laughs) I mean, for Mechanicals, Bubblegum Crisis is amazing. That's one of the reasons why I like it so much. But um, also Akira. Like, if you look at, like, background art and, like, um, effects art, Akira is amazing for just that sort of impression. You know, like, color, backgrounds. um, Like, I don't really like the character designs as much from that, but, like, just the overall, um, like, package in Akira is very high quality. I've also referenced stuff from like Hayao Miyazaki, like the like Naushka or uh, Princess Mononoke, mm. for example. Um, I'm working on a forest level for our game, and uh, those two movies are are pretty good for influences. <laughs> and what do you think is the difference? Like now that you're independent, now you can do whatever you want. Do you feel like you're like? more hesitant in, like, what you do. It's, like, before when you were working on, like, a baseball game, you kind of knew what the final product had to be, right? Right. It's a baseball game. Now you do anything. So doesn't that make it kind of harder? It does, actually. I mean, like, it's like I have to be my own art director, right? So I have to be pleased with my design before I go forward with it. So, like, I have to come up with something that I think looks good and is something that you know maybe people haven't really seen before or maybe it evokes a certain look that they have seen before right Hmm. um and i'm trying really hard not to copy anything obviously but um at the same time it's like well we want these aspects and we want these little nods to other games right so those things are in there but yeah it is hard because like when you have a team like i'd have somebody who would just draw designs for what they wanted, and then I would make them, right? But now it's like, I'm the guy who has to come up with that, right? So it actually extends how long something will take. And I also have to be satisfied with it. So it's like, I have to design it, then I have to build it, then I have to scrutinize it, right? Like, (laughs) so, um, yeah, like, it, it takes a really long time to, actually just for me to wrap my head around it, um, earlier on in the project, I'm actually much more used to it now, so it's like, it's easier for me now, but like in the first year or so of designing what the visuals of this game were going to look like, um, I sort of had to force myself to do these artistic mental exercises where I would just go through, okay, what do I like? What do I think I want? You know, And I would sketch stuff and I would be like, oh, no, not that, and, you know, sketch. And it... it <clears throat> It is a very different sort of artistic muscle in a way to be in charge of like the art direction of a game than it is to be in charge of like technical you know, graphics or mm. effects or you know even just characters, right? So, 
and I also kind of like you worked in the industry, so you worked with a lot of like people that you know worked on engines. So what's your oh, yeah. opinion on like being independent today compared to like obviously in the '90s it was almost impossible, but like now you have Unity, <laughs> Unreal Four, and you have all these free engines that you could just download and learn. Like, what's your opinion on that? And did that really help you know th your game? You know, start up. I mean, without that engine, we wouldn't have ever gotten started. So I have to say, yes, <laughs> um, it was a big help. Uh, <laughs> you know, back in the 90s and stuff, uh, there were obviously independent games, but they're all on PCs mostly because, you know, there was no real console self-publishing or anything like that. Um, and, and they're always smaller games, usually just like by one or two guys or whatever, you know. Um, and, and it was the market was tiny, right? But nowadays, yeah. it's like with the advent of online marketplaces like Steam, and even the console ones, you know, the PlayStation One, the Nintendo One, you know, everything. Um, you can actually get your game out there as long as you have like enough awareness, you know, online. You can get your game out there, and it's you know financially viable suddenly, right? So, um, not only is the engine a big deal, but also just the environment that we get to work in now. It's like if we make the right friends like you guys or like, you know, YouTubers and other people who like our game mm -hmm. and say, hey, you should check out this game. Um, you know, that that really changes everything because you don't need to hire, you know, million dollar advertising, you know, campaigns and stuff like that. And so. that's something we've like seen in the last, I guess, decade really now at this point where like, all these games are kind of like these independent people go in and they do these passion projects where they look at past games they like, but like they never continued for some whatever reason. And they right, kind of exactly. do a, a modernized take on it. And do you think that like companies still don't do that? Like they're still going with like, we got to spend $80 million on this new Uncharted game. <laughs> and they never think maybe we should just do a small budget like retro platform. It's always trying to make the technology to the next height, which is not bad, because, I mean, somebody has to do it, but... Somebody has to do it, yeah. Yeah, but, like, you don't think sometimes they, like, look at some of their games bombing where they're trying to chase a trend, and then they see, like, Undertale selling 5 million copies. Uh, I know, right? Yeah, I, so, I was surprised. One of, the, one of the reasons why they do that, and I don't know if it's a good reason or a bad reason, really. I mean, in some ways, I feel like it's a bad reason, but... Um, one of the reasons why they do it is because um, when you look at the structure of a company and you look at how much money each person is being paid, um, for whatever reason, I, I, they never gave me a, a solid reason, but I've asked people about this. They said a small team isn't actually worth the budget we put in. So like, if you want to do a really small game and you only say like need you know 10 people or less, right? He said, hey, we can make this game, you know, we'll do that. And they'll say, well, the budget for that doesn't make any sense. I think it's because they, they feel like the profit margin won't be there for it or something. I don't know. Um, but big companies don't tend to do small games. So they'll, they'll hire a small studio to do their small games for them because it makes more sense for them to spend on an outsourcing budget than to have their own people that could be working on like a triple A game. Right. Have their own people make a small game. 
And yeah. we've seen that a lot recently uh, with Sega, with Streets of Rage 4, with um, Sonic Mania, yep. with uh, <laughs> Shenmue 3. No. Um, <laughs> but uh, Shenmue 3 is a special case. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, were there any other game development things you wanted to touch on before we move into this uh, final little bit I wanted to ask about? Um, hmm. This is kind of diverged, but, uh, oh, I wanted to say that, uh, in honor of the Dreamcast, I, I, I feel like it's a shame that the console never got a final generation of software because as people develop for a console, you know, they learn more and more about how to like tweak it or, or make it perform more than you would think it could. Right. Right. And, um, when you get to the final generation of software, it's usually like, oh my gosh, you know, you compare like, you know, final generation game to like an early one. And I remember even you guys talking about Genesis games and I was like, wow, I, I, I like didn't even think about it back in that era, but um, like a final gen Genesis game versus like a first gen Genesis game is drastic, right? Same hardware, everything. It's like really a huge difference though. And, um, Unfortunately for all of us, we never got to see that with the Dreamcast. Yeah. And, uh, I think the closest thing that I that I was ever like thinking might have been semi representative of a final gen game on Dreamcast is uh, Have you guys ever heard of a game called Under Defeat? Yes. Under Defeat is a very amazing looking game on Dreamcast, and uh, one of the things that I thought was incredible about that game is it uses a lot of transparency. And remember what I was saying about rendering transparency on Dreamcast. It wasn't. It definitely was not the best at rendering transparency. In um, transparency in general, on a graphics unit is actually expensive. And Under Defeat uses transparency like crazy. It's like explosions and smoke and everything all over the place. And um, I was also very impressed by its physics system. Uh, when things explode, like trees will wave in the wind and like it's like shock waves. And, it was amazing. It's like smoke trails will actually bend based on a shockwave. It's like all the little touches in that game are, are really cool. And uh, that was something I wanted to touch on. It's like, that's the closest I've ever seen to a final generation Dreamcast game, I think. And it's such a shame it's so expensive. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, I know. Well, it came out in like 2007 or something. It was yeah. like really late. I actually paid almost $80 to get that game, like brand new. I ordered it from Japan. Not bad. <laughs> I mean, it's now going for anywhere from 100 or more. I'm seeing uh, case manual and music CD only for 70 here on eBay. So That's a good deal. Somebody should take that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, well, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. I bet I could burn it. I mean... Yeah, you could burn it. It's actually on PS3 also, oddly enough. Um, yeah. And actually, they ported it. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Three sixty, but yeah. But if you want to be impressed by the Dreamcast, you should get it on Dreamcast. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, it's like that with Shenmue too. People go, "Oh wow, it looks it looks amazing on Xbox," and I'm like, "You should check it out on Dreamcast. Like, it is pretty cool what it was capable of." Um, I always think that like the original hardware, like something launches on. I mean, it's not always true, but it's usually true for me. Like, mm -hmm. I appreciate the game more when I see it on it running on its native platform. It's just like. Well, of course the PS3 can push that kind of graphics. You know, who cares, right? right. 
Right. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of Sega related. So you, your wife cosplays. Oh, yes. And yes. She's really into that. <laughs> super into that. And you have, you have done some couples ones. Um, we have. You were Space Michael, correct? Yes. And she was Ulala. Um, yep. <laughs> you've done some other ones, too. I think you did uh, Animal Crossing, I think. Yes, we did Animal Crossing. Right, yeah. And so I was just, I was, you know, I, I follow her on social media. I see what she's up to with um, with the cosplaying. And it's, it's, it's a, like, a fandom that I never really know much about, especially on the side that she's on. So I'm curious, what... What is she primarily cosplay, or the cosplays are based on? Like, are these anime? Uh, she does both games and anime. She she's cosplayed quite a few game characters recently as well. She did um, Talon from Soul Calibur okay. and uh, Josie Rizal from Tekken Seven. Um, what are these groups of like um, women in different colors? I mean, I know I sound like an old man now, but. <laughs> I'm just, I'm fascinated. I'm assuming by you're it. talking about Sailor Moon. <laughs> Not even that, but there's like other ones. Or is it all Sailor Moon? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, probably Idol Master. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> so, okay. So, Idol Master is a video game about raising idols to be superstars. Oh. And it's only in Japanese. I think, they only, I think they had one English version. It was on like a cell phone or something. It was really expensive and nobody bought it. Um, but so in Japan, idol culture is very common, right? Like they have many, many idol groups, either girls or guys, right? right. And they, they're all produced. They're all very, uh, <laughs> they're, they're like a commodity almost, right? Like they get all these really cute girls or really handsome guys together and they have them get on stage and sing and do these performances and everything. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that got really big. Uh, partially because anime started doing it, but Idol Master was one of the catalysts to actually starting that. And um, Idol Master was an arcade game, oddly enough, arcade game, where it was sort of visual novel like, sort of Sakura Wars ish, where you would talk to the girls and then you'd have them do like little dance routines and stuff, and you'd have to make them practice, otherwise they'd be terrible. I right? see. And, like, your encouragement and the practice would make them better and better. But each girl had a different personality, so you actually had to, like, treat each girl differently to make them better, right? Oh, it's kind of like Sakura Tyson. That's what I'm saying, yeah. It's like Sakura Yeah, okay. Yeah, I get it. Okay. And, um, yeah, so that whole, like, kind of visual novel-ish interaction with, you know, virtual characters... <clears throat> sort of genre became really big and they started making anime about idol master and they started making other idol anime mm-hmm. and, um, and so idol master kept getting bigger and bigger and um one of sherry's friends my wife's name sherry mm-hmm. uh, her friend really loves the characters in idol master she got to play the games a little bit but she really just loves the characters and stuff mm-hmm. and the dance routines and uh sherry was really into cosplaying and dancing so like she got recruited by um, this friend of ours to be part of that group. And they went on for, this went on for years. Like mm-hmm. she did many costumes from it and they did a lot of performances. 
And I was looking at, like, I'd look at her and be like, this is a lot of work. Are you crazy? <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, you have to not only make the costume, but you actually have to practice a lot, you know, and then dance on stage, you know? Mm-hmm. I just, I could never do that much. Like, I'll, I'll work on the costumes with her and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's very cool. Yeah, I'm just, I'm very impressed by the uh, the talent she has for creating these costumes and then, and then doing all that other work as well. And it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about your own career and how you've kind of become a jack of all trades too. Um, yeah, to this point, uh, it's sort of funny how we yeah we we cross over in that sort of regard, I guess. You have know. you have you been aware of that before? Like between us? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, sort of. We we had that common fandom, but then like we kind of split off. It's funny because she's really good at video games, but only rhythm dancing video games. Right. Like she's really really good at those. But like I have her play like Super Mario Brothers. She's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, are there any plans to do costumes for your game? Actually, yes. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, not too much of a secret, but um, she wants to do a costume from our game. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, that would bring two worlds combine. That would be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, nice. Well, yeah. Well, thanks. For, really cool. Thanks for indulging me. I just, I had, I had to ask. I was just, I was fascinated by it, but at the same time, it's like, what is this from? I don't know. You know, um, I, I, I there's a, a Japanese bookstore near me, and I'll go there and I'll see all these things, and I'm like, what is this? Like, you know, they'll pander, <laughs> they'll pander to the Westerners and be like, here's Godzilla, here's Gudetama, but then I'll see, I'll see the the sections that, you know. None of the Americans are going over to it. I'm like, what is this? So that's cool. So my passion for anime stemmed out of video games as well. I uh, I actually ended up getting into like manga and stuff mm-hmm. because I saw in Electronic Gaming Monthly there was a, a weird game called Ranma One Half where they were talking about how a guy turns into a girl when he gets splashed in by water and stuff. I'm like, what is this? But hey, it looks like it's martial arts. That's cool, right? So I looked. At, I went to a comic store. And I saw it on the shelf and was like, "Hey, that's that Ranma one half thing." Mm-hmm. So, I, so I actually started reading it. I was like, "Wow, this is really funny," and it has cool like martial arts and stuff. So that was actually how I got into reading manga. At least I had seen anime before that, but um, at least like the manga side was influenced by video games also. So yeah, that's how it always works. A curious story. <laughs> I know. Everyone always has that entry point. It's either you start with anime, manga, or video games, and then you move into all the other you ones. You, like, cross over the other one, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, cool. So well, ha- have you seen any, like, have you seen much anime? Actually, both of you, like, I'm sorry. Uh, um, when, well, when I grew up with anime, my first ones were actually Ranma, Ranma because... And Dragon Ball, because they didn't play them in America, but when I went to Mexico to visit my cousins, they would play it there, and I was, like, impressed. Oh, yeah. yeah, like, they were so far ahead of anything. They Even when they started Dragon Ball here, like, there was a point where they would just do all the way to, like, the Ginyu Force saga, and then they would repeat it. And uh, <laughs> over there, they're already, like, in the Majin Buu saga and stuff, so it was, like... Pretty oh, crazy wow, yeah. to go visit my cousins and then come back and tell my friends like, well, actually, this is what this is what happens afterwards. Hmm. Um, yeah, one, of my, so, one of my friends actually went to France one time and she said that she saw Rama on TV and I was like, yeah, oh, really? They, they have it over there on TV. They had those shows and so that's how I got into it. 
Not cool. <laughs> no, I was always more into like the the films. So like Studio Ghibli. Um, I remember renting some of the more adult stuff. Uh, well, you <laughs> some know, people did that on accident. I know that. Like the ones where it was just like hyper violence or something. You're like, holy shit. Um, <laughs> Right. But, uh, yeah. yeah, and then in terms of, like, television, I think, like, a miniseries I was really into, so, like, Fooly Cooly, and... Um, oh, that's a good one, yeah. Uh, I, I did like Dragon Ball Z, but it was almost kind of, like, a joke amongst me and my friends, because we'd be watching... It's kind of like watching your soap operas, you know? And then right. you pick up on all these inside jokes and all these ridiculous things, like the powering up for three episodes straight you know um, and it's so, like wrestling yeah so we <laughs> half the time we'd be not so much like gushing over the show as we would just be making fun of it and it actually rolled into a friend of mine and i in high school making a uh, web comic where it was a spin-off, but it was with guru from um you know uh namek and mm. so it was like his side story and like what happened with him and his his like all the Namek Namekians um, after Dragon Ball Z and like he became like he he hired like a guy to make his website and there were like all these strange like he started to battle the sun and <laughs> what else did he do he start he became a rapper that ridiculous. yeah he became a rapper and then he like moved to Earth and became the president and then he like cloned himself and became a cop like he did all of these things at once on earth and it was just insane and everything was a saga so every 10 episodes a new <laughs> saga would come out and we hosted it on our own geocity site and like four of our friends would read it read it and that was about it but uh, yeah that lasted 200 i mean 200 uh episodes or like uh pages so it was big oh, okay it was huge that's pretty big yeah but um yeah that's kind of that's anime for me you know but uh <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not too all consuming, but when I when I do get into something, I really get into it. Um, so, like, I, I know you guys report on a lot of Sega products, and it seems like Sega is actually doing more anime crossovers and like working with more, um, especially artists who are well known for like manga or anime. Mm -hmm. Like the, the new Sakura Tyson, it is done by the guy who did Bleach, I think. Yeah. Um, and obviously, the old one was done by. Fujishima, who is responsible for like Oh My Goddess and stuff, so mm -hmm. um, they've always had these, you know, in certain in certain ways, they've had these close ties with uh, like anime creators. Do you ever like go and look up what these guys have done, like manga wise or anime wise, like just to kind of familiarize yourself? Because it's like, like especially if you're looking at something like, um, I mean, this isn't Sega, but like if you look at something like Dragon Quest. Like, Toriyama's closely tied into that series, you know? Um, yeah. But same thing with, like, Sakura Wars. For so many versions of Sakura Wars, it was Fujishima, right? So, mm -hmm. like, do you ever go, like, hey, I wonder what else he's done, and, like, go look that stuff up? I've done that, yeah. I've, I haven't taken, like, deep dives, but I'll look at their art. I might, if they've done, like, a manga, I'll, like, read an issue or two. Um, and it's just, it is kind of fascinating to see that art style. Cause really, it, I, I think in the end, it's the art style that I personally will really enjoy. Um, right. especially when it came to the, uh, Sakura Wars, because they weren't localized until I believe the fourth game. And so. Right. It's the one with the cowboy girl. Yeah. It was, uh, so long, my love. Um, so I actually played the first two. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. See, that's the thing, though. So for me, I, I couldn't understand them. So I would just look at the art and enjoy the art. And if I saw something from the same person, I I definitely check it out. But I feel like what they're doing right now is they probably are trying to build up a new franchise with it, do an anime, right? Do a game. This is sort of their. I think this is their chance to like make Soccer Wars big in the world. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, not just yeah. in Japan. So yeah, they're they're really. I think they're they're doing it right. I feel. Um, and, this is something I've talked about with George a lot too, is that Sega of America in the like 2010s, uh, I mean, we're in that now, but like 2010, 2011, they uh -huh. did not understand that there is a huge audience here that will get super into something that is, uh, in I think Sega of America's mind, um, way too Japanese for the West. And... Well, they've sort of proven that out, right? With Yakuza, it's of like, course, yeah. And so this I, game is super Japanese. We can't believe how well it does in the West now. It, right? it, it only took them firing everybody from Sega of America and letting Atlas do it, though, because like yeah. before oh, that, that they, so like <laughs> yeah, before like uh, Hatsune Miku was like oh, Sega right, Japan. They had to bring the demo to uh, uh, E3 because Sega of America did not set it up, so. Uh, the the game for PSP was on the Sony booth and it was only in Japanese, so people mm -hmm. were playing it and they were getting feedback and then they kind of released it. That's why I've heard the story like Sega Japan had to go behind Sega of America's back to like get testing done on it by American people. So well, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. Those, 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 guys really, those guys need to go to anime cons because. Miku was gigantic at anime cons. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I do know firsthand that there are former Sega of America employees who kind of didn't like that direction. They didn't like being the localization house. They really wanted to be making their own games. And they would look, you know, they would look very fondly on projects like Alien Colonial. Not, maybe not Colonial Marines, but like Alien vs. Predator. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. The Marvel... Yeah ones because that was a project they worked on like that was something they were actually doing all the the hard work to develop even if it was with like a third party and yeah it's just it's interesting so they, they kind of want their own identity in a way right yeah and so it's interesting to talk to to these people because you know on one hand i get where they're coming from on the other hand i just want to tell them yeah but the marvel games were really bad and you do know that yakuza <laughs> is made by like all-star talent like why why would you push these great, proven great games aside so that you can have your own stamp of what a Sega of America game is? And I think... Yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I, I mean, think they, you know, it's one of those things... If nothing where, else, do both, right? Like, yeah, and I think it might be one of those things where succeed. when you're working on it, you think it's the best thing ever. I actually was reading a very interesting article about uh, Sonic Boom, Rise of Lyric, about Big Red Button... Oh, yeah. And, um, when you went into the comments, it actually had some employees from Big Red Button, and they were saying, you know, we tried our hardest. This was something we're really proud of, yada, yada. Um, but then people would point out, yeah, but when you step out, step outside of that bubble and look at it, you realize it's a really bad game. <laughs> and um, Well, I mean, it's, it's fine to be proud of your work, right? right. But, um, like, I, I've never been, like, sort of disillusioned, or not disillusioned, but um, I've never been... I guess sucked in by my own work in that manner. Like I, if I work on a game that I didn't think was good, I'd, I, you know, I'd be fine with people saying like, "Oh yeah, it's not very good." Right, right. <laughs> like some of the PS2 Sims games, I'm like, well, they're they're kind of mediocre, you know. And 
there's no way I'd suggest them to people as like, oh, this should be your Sims experience, you know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> um, but like the work I put into it, I think that there are, you know, there's good points to it. And I always try to do my best when I was on anything. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's a different And so way. taking pride in your work is different from like sort of not having a clue of whether your game is good or not, you know? Right, right. <laughs> of course, of course. So, and it's, it's, it must be nice now you're not so much a part of the system now that you can kind of sit back and enjoy these things a little bit more, wouldn't you say? Well, the thing that is nice is that when somebody says something pleasant about Strike Blazinger, it's yeah. like, that is my work, right? Yeah. All of it's my work, practically, right? So it's like, <laughs> well, thank you, right? <laughs> right, yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, they're talking directly to me instead of me being just sort of like a piece of, the, mm. you know, the puzzle, right? Mm. Like, a lot of people ask me, like, hey, do you know all these Sims codes? And I'm like, no, nah, I'm just the effects artist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but what like, an effects artist, right? <laughs> I guess so, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're running pretty long here. Um, just to uh, if oh, no, that's any... fine. yeah, no, it's cool. Um, so just to if there's anything else to wrap things up, um, George, did you have any additional uh, questions? Uh, I think he's. Didn't you say you wanted to talk about Kickstarter? Is that yeah, what we oh, talked yeah, about? I, I just I just want to go over like. Um... People have the wrong idea, I think, about what Kickstarter means and what it represents. Mm -hmm. So everybody kind of knows what venture capital is, right? Like, there, there's somebody who has money and they take a risk on somebody who needs money but has, you know, the talent or the ideas to create a new product, right? Or like a service, right? So either new games or like Uber or whatever, right? Right. But Kickstarter is that same idea, but then crowdsourced. But I feel like people have the wrong idea about what Kickstarter means because a lot of people are like, I'm pre-ordering your game, and then now I have like directorial power over you as well, right? Where it's like, well, that, that doesn't even make any sense. Like you, you're just like one of thousands of people who put in money. And number two is, didn't you realize that this is actually like venture capital, like you could just lose that money. This is actually just you're 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 taking a risk on somebody, right? Yeah. And so everybody's like upset about Shenmue three being Epic exclusive, right? But they don't understand that that's not part of their control. Like they they funded Shenmue three in theory because they wanted Shenmue three to exist. Yeah. Right. Now they you know. Shenmue 3 will come out on all these different platforms, but it might not come out on Steam, right? But that actually uh, still... For a year, probably, that's what they say. For a year or something, right? Yeah. But that still accomplishes the goal of Shenmue 3 existing. Right. right? Yeah, most definitely. I and, thought you were going to I thought you were gonna the, announce that you were going to do a Kickstarter for your game. I was going to wait. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> At least not yet. <laughs> but, uh, um, but no, we, we want to do it right, so... Uh, one of the things that I've always told Chris is like, I want to have the game in a place where I think we can complete it very soon after we launch the Kickstarter, because I've noticed how impatient people are yeah. and how upset they get with delays and all sorts of other stuff. So uh, I don't want to take anyone's money until we know we're not going to have delays, at least. <laughs> yeah. And you make a very good point about the Kickstarter. I think um, something mm -hmm. that 
you know, fans both defending Shenmue 3's decisions and those against it. Um, I think many don't realize is that Epic Games, they're the ones issuing the refunds. Um, I know George got a little flack because he was trying to get his, his refund on the game because he, he didn't want to play the... I, I do want to say this because, because yeah. I, I got the limited run version, so now I have two. One, I spent $200 on the game. That's yeah. fine. I'm, oh, okay. I'm over it. I'm over it after the demo. I, yeah, I play yeah. the demo and I'm like, I, all right, I could live with this. <laughs> but, but yeah, but people were saying, you know, like, oh, he's taking it from Yu Suzuki's pockets. But it's like, no, that money went into the game. Now the money's coming out of the Epic deal, which right. is all coming from Epic. So this is Ep Epic knew full well that they would be taking a little bit of a hit. They would have to take a hit to have that exclusive. Right. Yeah. And when I visited their store, I mean, there's nothing there. So to see that's Shen bizarre, <laughs> you know, and so to see Shenmue three on there, it is something they're paying to have something uh, important. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. 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 There, I mean, yeah. there is something there when you go to the store, but yeah, nothing. It's not a white catalog like Steam, right? Of course. So right, yeah, but you make a very good point there. I mean, uh, I personally, I backed uh, several um, indie Dreamcast games for a while until they started not fulfilling their promises. Uh, uh -huh. Um, which one comes to mind? Uh, uh, Elysian Shadows. Oh, that was the. Uh, that's the one with some real problems. But um, I'm not familiar with that. One. It's yeah. it's tricky because yeah, I I do accept that I did back someone's vision and they didn't fulfill the promise, and I'm I'm not I'm probably not getting anything. But at the same time, uh, I I do feel I I at least am in the right to complain <laughs> complain. <laughs> sure. No, I mean yeah, that's fair, right? That's fair. Yeah, but it's. It's one of those things where I feel like a lot of people don't realize that it's not a pre-order. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually not. It's you're you're throwing money at somebody in hopes that this thing will eventually exist. You right. Know? right. And you just have to you just have to kind of know that when you use Kickstarter. I think it's it's really they need to kind of alter the way that they introduce people. Like calling it a reward. They do. I think calling it a reward <laughs> is a big problem because if you don't get it, then you didn't get your reward. Right. Well, you so, didn't get the base thing either, maybe, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's kind of... I think, too, they should restrict people more as to what the rewards are. Like, I remember it used to be, you get a t-shirt, you get this, you get that, but everyone gets the final product. But now it's becoming more the reward is the final product. And... Sometimes, think, yeah. Yeah, sometimes. And, sometimes. But I feel like it's more often than not now. Like, it'll be like 5 or $10. Just helping out. $75, you get the game. And, <laughs> right. and I remember when Kickstarter started, it was really like $5, you get a video message, $10, you get a t-shirt, but any tier will get... We'll get the game. Right? The game, or whatever I'm selling. Or whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's... Well, it also depends on the budget of the project. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Like, and, if, you're, uh, if you're funding something that's relatively cheap, then maybe the $5 tier is the whole thing, right? But... Mm -hmm. If you're funding something that's actually really expensive to do, like say Shenmue Three, right? Then it's almost like donating, right? These yeah. are donation tiers, and then these are actual you get the product tiers, right? <laughs> and um, another thing I was gonna say, what's your opinion on like early access, where like developers, you pay a front like let's say fifteen dollars for the game. But it's not complete, and then the people that play it and backed it in early access get to like, I guess, give feedback on what they don't or 
I mean, what they don't like about the game, so the developer keeps on updating it until the full release. Uh, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I think in some ways it's it's sort of not great because you're giving somebody an incomplete product, right? Yes. And the the market impression of your product is going to be instantly based on that thing that you gave to them. And if your game isn't finished and it's not very good at the time or it has some problems, right? Whether it's yeah. gameplay or visuals or anything, suddenly that is exactly what people will remember remember about your game because everybody will talk about that early access version. And you, you can't do anything about that, right? Like that's just what's gonna happen. It's like, it, it's worse than giving people a demo because at least with a demo, people say, oh, well, this is just a demo, right? Yeah. With an early access game, it's like, well, this is the game, even if it isn't the whole game, right? Yeah. So, um, I I think it depends on how you do early access because I I've the only one I've ever done for uh, paid for upfront was this game called Dead Cells. I don't know if you played it. It's on Switch now, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, I've heard of it. I haven't played it. Uh, and when it basically all they did was like change the UI and then they added like a bunch of like different bosses and dialogue options and stuff that people were saying it needed and fleshed it out that i'm okay with but i agree if you're going to release like a tech demo or alpha then you're probably going to have a bad time right you have a bad time and especially if you have delays just like kickstarter like if you if you're not fulfilling these goals and people are already paying you it's it's a bad time yeah i really think that people need to be very careful about using those sorts of services it's a benefit in terms of getting wide testing for your game but I feel like your game should be almost done at that point. Yeah, most definitely. So, yeah, early access, like, I would only use it if we needed a really wide test, you know? It's like, we need thousands of players to play our game so we know that all of the versions of the game work. Like, okay, early access, right? And so when do you think we're going to get an update on your game? <laughs> oh. That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> We'll almost for sure have something by early to mid next year, I think. Okay. But, um, but yeah, don't don't expect any you know certain day or anything like that. We'll we'll try to put out an update when we actually are more sure of it. You know. Mm. <laughs> well, please keep us in mind when you uh, when you do have something to share. We'd love to tell everyone who reads our site, listens to these shows, and. Um, of course, yeah. yeah. Of course. And so, uh, I I really want to thank you for reaching out to me um, that you wanted to talk about your work on the Dreamcast, and uh, it's it's really fascinating stuff. I just um, I I always knew you as the Strike Blazinger guy, and right. so um, <laughs> I, I knew you know sit and wait until the game reaches a state, and then I'll and then I'll contact you. And so I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, it's been. Uh, very informative. I don't think I ever really get to talk to someone who worked on games at that time and really pick their brains um, from a development perspective. Typically, it's been like uh, the idea man. I think the, the closest we've come is um, uh, the, the Floygan Brothers guy who really was more voice actor and uh, game design. So, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, so it's it's been great. Um, uh is there anything you uh, you do have a Twitter account if people want to follow you? What's that at? I do. It's uh, what's it? It's Omikuma. Mm -hmm. 
at Twitter. You can just follow the uh, Strike Harbinger. It's still Strike Harbinger, I think. Um, that's Chris's. If people want game updates, that's the one they should follow. Okay, great. And then the website, too, is it? Mine is mostly just retweets of Art Span and stuff. <laughs> and then if we have one. any big updates, it'll be on Strike. Yeah, most definitely. And then it's strike strikeblazinger.com. Uh, yeah, I think I think Blazinger also goes to the same page. So. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think last I checked it. Well, great. Well, Chris did update on that. Yeah. I, again, I really want to thank you for um, coming on. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and talking with us and uh, bringing back the Swing and Report show. It's episode ninety-five. Five more episodes. To 100, we'll probably get there in like 2029. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I made it right under the wire. Absolutely. <laughs> Just before 100. <laughs> um, so thanks again. Segabits. Segabits is a fan site that is not in any way officially affiliated with Sega. Sonic the Hedgehog and all Sega-related trademarks are copyright Sega. All other featured trademarks are the property of their respective owners. Don't forget to check out Segabits.com, and you can find us on all major social networks. Just search Segabits. 